Well, some of you may know, I have been blessed with an excellent wife, Valerie. She came up and visited you last year. And many of the things that I didn't know when we got married, I discovered afterwards. And as with any marriage, especially those who are newlyweds, there are happy surprises and there are challenging surprises. One of the happy surprises in our marriage was to discover just how incredibly handy my wife was. My wife likes to do home renovation as a, a hobby. So she, and she plans out our house and she makes changes as she sees fit. And I'm there, I'm the laborer, I carry things in. She's the designer and the implementer. Last year, she undertook a major project to replace the flooring on our main floor. And when it comes to things like these, there's no question who is the most competent. So I'm the laborer, and she's the boss. But this time, we added another player to the mix. My two-year-old son, Benjamin. He is absolutely fascinated by anything construction. We've had some construction on the, down the street. He just watches all the trucks, and he can, he can tell you the difference between a skid seer and a backhoe and all those things. He loves it. So when he saw my wife and I tearing up the floor in the kitchen, he started to follow us. He started to imitate us. And he started to pick up broken tile and put it in a box that would be carried to the dump. And when he saw me lift up the heavy box and take it to the, to the big box outside and dump it, he then started to do it. And when I went downstairs to work on my sermons, he kept going. And if you ask my wife, he actually was a real little help, two years old. But he quickly discovered that there is limitations to what he can do. He couldn't carry the box when it was full. And as a two-year-old is wont to do, when they don't get what they want... They start crying and wailing as if it's the end of the world in frustration. So he kept crying. He would fill up the box and he cried when it needed to go out. I wonder this morning if you can relate a little bit to that. I think we all bump up against our limitations. We don't want to be unable to do anything, especially if it's something that is required of us. An interesting question to ask ourselves as Christians, if you're a Christian this morning, or even if you're a non-Christian, is what does God require of us? What does God require of me, of you? Well, if you know your Bibles, and if, you know, if you've had any sort of encounter with the book of Micah, the answer is to be found in Micah. But it's also to be found elsewhere. The, the very simple answer to the question of what God requires is what is repeated time after time, be holy as I am holy. And just in case you think that's just in the Old Testament, we also see it in 1 Peter 1.16. But what does it mean to be holy as God is holy? What does that involve? Well, this morning we're beginning this three-part series in the book of Micah. And the prophet offers us this specific answer to what holiness looks like, what godliness looks like in chapter 6 and verse 8. You may have heard this verse before. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So what does this, what do we do with this threefold requirement of God to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly? Can we actually fulfill it? Yes or no? Do you do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly 
with your love, with your God? It's not a new challenge. Are you holy as God is holy? Could you say, I am holy as God is holy? It'd be a hard thing for us to say, wouldn't it? Something that we actually struggle with as we consider what God requires us and we look at our lives and we look at what we produce, there's a big discrepancy. And we're not the first people to struggle with this. The early church also struggled with this. Augustine, or as some of you know, Augustine, but Augustine of Hippo, the early church father, used to pray this. He said, grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. Let me say that again. Grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. Now, what was Augustine praying? He was praying and asking God to grant him the ability to do as God had commanded him. He believed he could not meet God's standards in his own power. Just like my son, Benjamin, he could not do it even if he wanted to do it. He believed that God does require something of us which we cannot provide ourselves. Something that is out of our power because of the problem in our lives. And the big problem, the biggest problem in your life, in this world, is your sin. Our moral failure corrupts us absolutely such that we cannot obtain righteousness in our own strength. Now, at the time of Augustine, there was another person came along who did not like that prayer of Augustine. His name was a, he was a British monk, and his name was Pelagius. You may have heard of him before. Semi-Pelagian, Pelagian, all those things. Augustine's prayer made him angry. Because he couldn't accept that God would demand something of his creatures that they couldn't provide. He believed that all men were capable of doing what the Lord required without supernatural help. This became what was known in the early church as the Pelagian Controversy, which was settled at the early church at the Council of Ephesus in 431, where they agreed with, thankfully, Augustine. And Augustine's, not just with Augustine the man, but with Augustine's biblical argument. The church collectively stated at the Council of Ephesus that God does require of us of a standard that we cannot satisfy in our own power. And frankly, brothers and sisters, this is exactly what the Bible teaches us, is what our passage teaches us this morning. It tells us the bad news of our sin and judgment. Bad news of our sin and the judgment that will come upon us if it is not dealt with in some way. But it also tells us of the preserving mercy of our God, ultimately in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a gospel message. This is one of the things, sadly, in our day to day, we don't have often a full gospel message. We have good news, and that is what the gospel means, but we cannot appreciate the good news if we don't know the bad news. If you're not convicted of your sin, then you will see no need to repent of it and turn to Jesus Christ. Gospel contains the bad news of our sin and judgment and the good news of the bondage-breaking power of God. And that's our focus this morning. Now, you might want to know a little bit more about Micah the prophet as we begin. But in the Lord's providence, we don't know very much about Micah at all. His prophecy is more important than his biography. 
Isn't that interesting? Right? When you think about who you're going to listen to, what's one of the things you often look for? It's like, oh, is this guy famous? Is this guy worth listening to? But Micah was a true servant of the Lord. It wasn't about his name. It was about God's name. We know his, his, uh, his location, really. It's Morishat. It's about 35, 40 kilometers southwest of Jerusalem. And he was prophesying at the same time as some of the other Old Testament prophets. We mentioned Isaiah. That was one was prophesying at the same time. And they were equal. They were not, you know, Micah the minor prophet and Isaiah the, the major prophet. They were both prophets of the Lord God. They both spoke the word of God. Now, during Micah's ministry, he witnessed the fall of Israel to Assyria in 722 BC and the attacks on Judah by the armies of Sennacherib that we see detailed for us in 2 Kings chapter 18. But it's interesting. His ministry and his focus are not so much on the foreign armies. They were not the biggest problem in Israel and Judah at the time. This is very reflective of our situation. Oftentimes we think it's outside problems that are our problem. But the biggest problem for Israel and for us is the inner corruption that was there. And corruption was all over Israel and Judah, the divided kingdom. You remember, Israel was 12 tribes, and the 10 northern tribes after Solomon broke away, and they formed their own high places and their own, their own worship. And the two southern tribes, Benjamin and Judah, stayed more faithful and true, although they themselves also fell into idolatry. And what was happening was happening, this corruption and sin was happening at every level. Prophets, priests, and kings were all out for their own profit and their own pleasure. Which again brings us back to this problem that we experience with sin. Because it's useful for us to see how others have struggled with sin. Because there is nothing new under the sun, as the writer of the Ecclesiastes said. Now, the book of Micah is actually easy to divide. That's why we're doing it in three sermons. There are The book of Micah is arranged around three major prophecies that begin with the word, Here. Hear statements. We see it here in our second verse. Hear you peoples of all of you. We see it again in chapters 3 and again in chapter 6. So this morning we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2, the first hear statement. This evening we're going to look at chapters 3 to 5, the second hear statement. And next Sunday, Lord willing, we will look at the third hear statements. And each of these hear statements are followed by a declaration of judgment. And it's a fearsome one here. But it's also... Followed, interestingly, by a subsequent declaration of salvation. Judgment and salvation. And in our first section that we're looking at today, if you were following along with me, you'd say, well, there's a lot of judgment there. And there was. We see a large judgment section from chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 2, verse 11. But there's a little salvation section tacked on there in verses 12 and 13. We're going to look then at this first judgment section under two headings this morning. Sorry, we're going to look at the whole section under two headings. First, just judgment, chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 11. And then secondly, bondage-breaking salvation, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So first of all, the just judgment. How does this prophecy begin? It begins very directly. It says, the word of the Lord. These first 
verses. I think sometimes when we come to a book of the Bible, we sometimes skip over them. But these first verses shouldn't be overlooked. Micah's claim here, when he says this, is that he is communicating the very word of Yahweh. The very word of God. Yahweh is the covenant name that we see in the scriptures. And when you see L-O-R-D in small capitals, uh, there as you see in verse 1, that is the actual Hebrew word there, Yahweh. The word of Yahweh that came to Micah of Moresheth. Now, literally, our text reads, the word of Yahweh that was to Micah. But the prophet doesn't control it. That's an important thing for us to understand in our day. Because there are lots of people that say that they're prophets that are out there. But what we see here is the the scriptural foundation is that the word of the covenant-keeping Lord comes to Micah. It comes by God's divine initiative. It's not some invention of man. Unlike what we sometimes hear with contemporary prophets, like, I feel that the Lord is telling me to do this. Or, I believe that the Lord is telling me this. That's a stronger statement. No, there is no ambiguity here in this situation. The word of the Lord, that came, past tense, accomplished fact, to Micah of Moresheth. This is the word of the Lord, Yahweh, that came to Micah. Now, the only hint of how this word came uh, about is this word in verse 1 that says that he saw, he saw which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And that seems to suggest that there was a visual aspect to this prophecy, but we really don't know that for sure. But the divine author does mean something for us. The divine authorship is what is key here. And this is important for us to understand, because if this is God's word to us, then it has an authority and a claim over our lives. If you come here just to listen to some guy say some things, then you're going to walk away and say, well, that was nice, or he's a, he's a loony. But if you're coming here and you're hearing the word of God, that has an authority over all of us, including me. So it's important. Since this is God's word, it carries a weight and an authority. Even if it's something that's maybe difficult for you at first glance to understand. We owe our attention to the word of the Lord. God condescended not to leave us in darkness, but to provide us with light. His word. This is the interesting thing. One of the amazing things about the Christian God, the true Christian God, is that he is a God who speaks. He's not a God who is silent. We don't have to wonder what he thinks. We know what he thinks because he has spoken to us in his word. When we come to worship, it's actually dialogical because God speaks to us from his word and we speak back to him in prayers, in songs of praise, in hymns, spiritual songs, all of those things. Now, many people today live in ignorance of God in their sinful ways. And when, they, when, when things go wrong in their lives, they don't really have a way of processing it. Sometimes you may hear people say something like, the universe must be angry with me. Right? They don't understand. They can't make sense of their circumstances. And this is not new. People without God have been struggling with this for a long time. There's an ancient Sumerian prayer that I came across that shows this kind of hopelessness. It begins this way. May the wrath of the heart of my God be pacified. May the God who is unknown to me be pacified. May the goddess who is unknown to me be pacified. May the known and unknown God be pacified. May the known and unknown goddess be pacified. The sin which I have committed I know not. 
The misdeed which I have committed, I know not. You can just sense the desperation and the frustration. What am I supposed to do? I better pacify all the gods. I better cover all my bases. Because I don't know. The Christian, by contrast, is not left to guess our God's will. We can't say that, can we? God has made himself known in all his power and his authority in the scriptures. If you have the word of God, then you are ignorant no longer. As Paul declared when he came across the ignorant Athenians at the Areopagus, he said, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So God is a God who communicates. And sometimes we yearn for communication, but sometimes the communication is a little bit much. Because what has God come to declare in this passage? Well, what we see here is Micah the prophet acting as a prosecuting attorney for God. Let's see what he says here in verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in you. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. Imagine that courtroom. Can't pull a, a fast one over God. He is coming here and he's using... Micah as the prosecutor, and he's bringing himself as a witness against the people there. So this is a prophetic role that Micah is presenting, where he is presenting God's case against his people. And it's a case, quite frankly, that is full of white-hot divine wrath and anger. Look at the imagery he uses. Melting mountains and splitting valleys. This is not gentle speak. This is not politically correct language. Why is he speaking this way? Well, verse 5 tells us, All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Now, of course, if we know that the history of the Old Testament it helps us here, because we recognize that ever since Israel has had a king, it's been on a downward slide. The best part of Israel's history was in the early kingship of David. But then David fell with Bathsheba, then he got involved in all kinds of other drama with Absalom and Amnon and Tamar and all of that, and it, it ends on a bad note. And then Solomon comes, and it's a little bit, it's okay for a little while, but then he starts, he takes wives, and he becomes in, in, engaged in, in their foreign worship, and then after him, uh, his sons come, and they, they then break the kingdom apart into the ten tribes in the north and the two tribes in the south, and things just keep going and getting worse and worse and worse. And you see the line of kings, and you, you start comparing what are the good kings, the bad kings, and eventually the bad kings seem to dominate. If you go through the book of Kings and Chronicles, you see this downward slide. And so we see this. Uh, we, and, and what's happened to worship is that it has been radically transformed. Worship in the unified Israel was always at Jerusalem at the temple. But as soon as uh, uh, Jeroboam had broken uh, free, Rehoboam had broken free, of, uh, 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 and, and the tribes had separated, he set up high places in Dan and Bathsheba. And these were places that he told the northern tribes to go to rather than going to Jerusalem. And so they descended quickly into idolatry, and they were the first of the tribes of Israel to be taken into exile. Judah follows later on. But as they do this, they establish a new kingdom capital. And that kingdom's capital is at Samaria. And we see the, uh, the, the, the identification here. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? 
right? The breaking of the kingdom and the establishing of a new capital, not at Jerusalem, but in Samaria. And this is one of the targets that God has in Micah's prophecy. Now, what had happened is that there was a, 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 an aping of the uh, idolatry that was around Israel at the time. There's an old saying that, you know, the, the people that you swim with will affect the way that you swim. And this is something that, that started to happen. As Israel broke away from Judah from temple worship, they started aping the Canaanite society around them. And the pagan worship in Micah's day and Canaan's day and even what was starting to happen in Israel was a sex-obsessed culture. Now, you may have heard that in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, many of the pagan cults had prostitutes and had, had, had sexual acts. And you would go up the, to the, the pagan temple and you would pay for prostitute uh, to have sex with them. Now, you may not have understood why, right? We have such pagan adultery today. It's called the internet porn. It's ways that we worship other gods, the gods of our pleasure and satisfaction. But they actually had gods that were associated with these things. And they believed that the sexual act was something that would affect. And this is because their gods were stupid. Their gods were stupid. Because basically, if they wanted their crops to succeed... They felt that if they went to the temple of Baal and they had sex with the Baal priestesses, that Baal up in, in heaven was like, oh, so that's how things are made. Let me bless your fields. Right? It was as if they were imitating the things like, here, God, this is what you need to do to, to, to be fruitful. Do this like us, and then you'll you, you follow us. It, it was, the idea was by entering into this sexual act that they would show the, the importance of procreation and that God would see that and Baal would see that and say, oh, good follower of mine, your crops will succeed this year. They engaged in these sexual acts not just because it was pleasurable, but because they, 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 it was required in their religion as a means of getting fruit. Because their gods were stupid. Their gods were useless. Their gods were wood and bale. And they felt like they had to do something. It's like the passage that Pastor John read earlier where Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal. And what are they doing? They're cutting themselves and saying, look God, look at us, come and bring down fire. And of course he doesn't respond because there is no God. There's only one God. And when, when, when Elijah builds up the fire, I will spoil it. You don't have to read 1 Kings. Um, he, he goes and he pours buckets of water on it. Not to make it more flammable, but to make it less flammable. Then he calls and he prays and God sends down fire that consumes not only the bull on the altar, but all of the false prophets around us. Because God is real. And his anger and his wrath against sin is real. And we seem quite happy at times to violate God's laws regarding adultery, fornication, in the pursuit of our own internet fantasies and the promise of pleasure. We also, not just Israel, but we also need to take warning here. God's wrath burns against this behavior. Now this morning, I hope none of you bow down to an idol of stone or wood. Well, the question I want to ask you is, do you bow down to images on an electronic screen? If you pursue sin when the God who made you has declared that that is sin and wickedness, that is your new God. When you sin, you're basically saying, I know better than God. 
And this is what I will worship. My own pleasure, my own satisfaction. Not the glory of God. Right? That's why we're, what we're called to do as Christians. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever mundane thing, whatever little thing you do, do it to the glory of God. Sex is to be done to the glory of God. God knows how sex works. You don't need to show him anything. He's given it as a gift within an appropriate context. And when we do it outside of those contexts, whether it's solo sex, whether it is sex with another person, those things are condemned by God and they bring us under his wrath. Do you ever wonder why we struggle to find time to spend in God's word? This is often one of the things that I hear as a pastor. I really find it's really hard for me to find time to spend God time in God's word. You know, my question is, what are you doing in its place? What are you doing in its place? What do you read or watch that takes up your time? Brothers and sisters, we need to think about what is our priority. The old reformer, John Calvin, puts it this way. He says, thus what took Micah some 38 to 40 years to preach, we can read, that's his prophecy, within an hour. How immense our ingratitude then, if seeing Micah labored all his life to exhort the people of his era, and that God has so graciously provided such a brief summary of the teachings for us, for us, for us to should fail to esteem them, or neglect to cast our eyes upon them. This is a, this is a question and, and a challenge that I throw out to you. Have you actually read the whole Bible before? Have you actually read it from cover to cover? It's not easy to read these minor prophets because they're talking off in pictorial language. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But this is God's word. And we need to prioritize it because he is our creator. But you might be, you might be saying, well, that sounds great for you, Pastor Chris. I mean, you're a pastor. You're, this, is, this is your job. This is what you're called to do. I don't really want to focus about reading about other people's judgment. Quite frankly, I've done enough that I'm under judgment already. Is this really relevant to me to be reading about a judgment in the 8th century, not even A.D., which is closer to us, but B.C.? This is a long time ago. We think it's talking about other people. That's our primary false foundation. I like how James Boyce puts this. He says, when we read of judgment on others, we almost sigh in relief, assuming wrongly that if judgment is spoken against them, it is therefore not spoken against us. But this is wrong. God is no respecter of persons. Consequently, if we are going our way and not God's way, as the people of Jerusalem were doing, then we must do as they eventually did and turn back to God. It is the way we ourselves will escape God's just judgment. This is important for us to understand that. Israel was under the condemnation of God for sin, and we today are under God's condemnation for our sin. Because God is not only the witness against us, in verse 2, it is the God who has come down. Now, so far, as we read through these first verses, if you were in Judah, in the southern tribes, you might have been okay with what Micah says in the first four verses. After all, it's those wicked northerners, those Canadians up there, right? And the king that broke up the covenant people. But just in case they were getting comfortable saying, Amen, to what he was saying there, Micah ends, verse 5, with a ground-shattering statement. He says this, 
And what is the high place of Judah? The faithful ones. Is it not Jerusalem? Well, hold on here, Mike. It's okay to go after those, those pagan northerners, but this is, this is home. This is where we are. We're in Jerusalem. Remember, we're, we're the ones that, we're the good guys. We go up to the temple and we worship there. And, and we sometimes maybe have that feeling. I'm not a Bajan, but even as I see our own culture in reflection of yours, I'm sure there's a tendency to say, well, that's the, that's the wickedness or that's the craziness of America. That's not, we don't do that. We're better than that here, right? Those crazy Canadians, right? Those crazy Americans, we're sane here. We are Bajan, right? But this is what Micah is addressing. He's saying sin is no respecter of borders. There's a tendency sometimes for us not to accept criticism that comes close to home. We can say, okay, Micah, it's fine to go after Samaria, but don't come after Jerusalem. Fine to go after America, but don't come to Bridgetown. But no, God cannot leave Jerusalem and he cannot leave Bridgetown alone. For all its witness, for all its incurable womb and imminent destruction has spread. And it's now here. We see this in verse 9. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. It's at our gate. Sin is crouching at the door, just like God said to Cain. Sin is ever present. It is not out there. The danger of sin is not out there. It's in here. It's in our inner corruption. Micah's concerned. He's so concerned, he's wailing. Verse 8. This is not just saying, look, it's a bad time. You've got to do something about it. Look at the language he uses. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Now, I have no idea what morning ostrich sounds like, but looking at a shape, I'm sure it's a terrible sound. But jackals, the, the imagery here is meant to convey utter despair. Stripped and naked is a picture of slaves. They were the ones that didn't have the privilege of clothing. And this is the bad news of the gospel. Michael's hearing hearers in Judah would have accepted the doctrine of God's just judgment. But they didn't expect that it would also apply to them. Right? And I think that's sometimes very reflective of our attitude as well, isn't it? We can condemn some of the things that are going on in government. We can condemn things going on even in other churches and in society. But God's concerned not so much about them as they are concerned about you and your heart. The Israelites approve of the doctrine, but they're oblivious to the danger that they are in. The Lord will judge even those who profess his name. Some of you may be clinging to a little card that you signed as a child. You signed and you made a decision. You said, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to go to heaven. Right? And maybe you were told, you're saved now and don't let anybody else tell you differently. The problem is, Jesus tells you differently. Right? One of the most fearsome passages in all of the scriptures is found in Matthew chapter 7, 
where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Those are terrible words. They're true words. We cannot profess to know Jesus Christ. We cannot profess to be Christians if we do not do, as Jesus says, the will of the Father. You will know that they are my people by their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. What fruit are you showing in your life that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? It's great that you're here. I'm delighted that you're here. Maybe listening on the internet or whatever it is. But that's not enough to save you. You need to know this Jesus. And as you see Michael wailing, we can see that from the context of the great prophet. Michael was a prophet, but the prophet, priest, king, Jesus himself, mourned over Jerusalem. He wept over it. In Matthew chapter 23, it says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the grieving of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. Do you weep? Over the sinfulness of our society. The wickedness that denies life to the unborn. The blind unbelief that declares men to be women. And women to be men contrary to the biological fact and created reality. That we were endowed with by our creator. And not only this. But we see pushing in our agenda in our society today. Is for everyone to approve of this perversity. Of course, this is what, again, the scriptures predicted and laid out and clearly outlined in Romans chapter 1. What do we do about this? We shouldn't be just ranting on Facebook about this. We need to weep. Weep over the sin in our society. Weep over the sin in our hearts. How much of your prayer is, God, give me this, God, give me that, God, give me this... How much of it is, Lord, I have sinned. Here's how I've sinned. Forgive me. One of the reasons why we lack depth in our Christian walk is because our prayer lives are all about a shopping list, a grocery list, instead of confessing our sins, seeking forgiveness, and being thankful for it. Look at what he says here. In verse 10, this is the wailing. He says, have you heard this before? He says, he says, tell it not in Gath. Is that a phrase that you've heard before? Yes, you have. If you read the Bible, it's from 2 Samuel. Tell it not in Gath. That's when Saul committed suicide. And King David said, tell it not in Gath. He didn't want Israel's enemies rejoicing. So Micah here applies it. And he says, exile will be like death. Like Saul's suicide. God will demonstrate his righteousness when he judges Israel. But Micah doesn't want the Philistines to celebrate as though their gods have triumphed over Yahweh. 
But his warning extends not just there, to Judah, to the lowlands, to Shephelah. In verses 9 to 15, we see him go into a series of word plays on the names of these towns. Right? He says, Tell not in Gath, weep not at all. In Bethel of whirl yourselves around in, in, in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and in shame. Now, unfortunately, because this is translated from the Hebrew, we don't get the word plays. You just see, oh, roll around the dust? What are you talking about rolling around the dust? But if you understand the Hebrew words that are there, it's a play on words. Davis, the commentator, anglicizes. He says, don't gab about it in Gath. Don't go weeping at all in dust town, Bethel Aphra. Roll yourself in the dust. Right? In other words, weep. I tried to modernize this a little bit. Micah is this... Declaring God's judgment, which if we applied it here in the context of Barbados, would be something like, God tear down the Bussa statue and wipe out Bridgetown. He will have the sea swallow up Spicetown and completely level Gun Hill and make it flatland. He will oxidize Oystens and blow away Bathsheba. That's the import of these verses. They relate all to towns and cities in Judah. And it sounds a little bit funny to hear it applied in your context, but that's how they would have felt. Not funny, they would have been afraid. Because they knew and they feared God. It's kind of shocking to hear blowing up Bathsheba, oxidizing oysters. But we need to hear this and understand that our God is not a tame God. He's not a pet. He's a lion. This language seems to be figurative, but we need to understand that it's not that figurative. God will come in judgment. The church father Jerome put it this way. He said, as wax cannot endure the nearness of fire, and as the waters are carried headlong, so all of the ungodly, when the Lord comes, shall be dissolved and disappear. Micah is trying to get Judah to understand that reality. He does it in vivid word pictures here. Look at verse 13, for example. Harness the steeds to the chariots. This is not for war. He's saying, put racehorses on your chariots and use them to flee from the wrath of God. You better soup up your car and go as fast as you can. If you stay, you might as well, as he says in verse 16, start shaving yourself for exile. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair. That's what he's saying. You know what? Guys, if you're not going to do anything, you might as well redeem the time. You're going to be taken as slaves. You might as well just get out the razor and start shaving. Because the wrath of God is coming. And it's inevitable. So you might as well start shaving. And we need to understand and take the wrath of God seriously for ourselves. Micah's world play indicates that he's meditated. He's thought carefully about the judgment. Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, too often judgment is a doctrine we affirm. Yes, God is just. Rather than a reality, we abhor. Christians don't delight in judgment. We don't try and say, ah, turn or burn, right? No, we abhor it. It's a reality. It's a truth that we accept because it's from God. It's not something that we delight in. I hope you don't delight over the wickedness or over the, the, the wicked getting their just end in there. I hope you have a, a note of compassion. Because ultimately, brothers and sisters, and I know this year one of the focuses for our church is outreach. One of the focuses, Pastor John and I would like you to 
to do is to share the gospel with others. But we can do that with different attitudes. We can do that, we can take that turn or burn and sort of have a contemptuous, we're better than you attitude, or we can recognize that we're all sinners. And that what motivates us to go and to share the gospel is compassion. Because we do not want others to be cast into the lake of fire that we ourselves deserve and have been saved from by the love of Jesus Christ. See, it's the love of Jesus Christ that compels us to go out and to share the gospel with people that spit at us, that reject us, because they rejected him. But we see in Israel at this time a real reflection of our modern society and even modern Barbados. Barbados enjoys the light of the scriptures. They've seen the effects of revivals in the past. And now, increasingly, your society is choosing to live by its own darkness. Churches are rejecting the very word of God itself and putting in place entertainment putting in place anything else. And if it continues to do this, it will receive just judgment. This is the crisis that we see more clearly in chapter 2. Really, two things being targeted in chapter 2 by by Micah. First, a lacking of righteous leadership in all areas of life. And then secondly, a lack of personal leadership. Righteousness, As the leader goes, so do the people. So if the leaders are unrighteous, so the people will be unrighteous. And that's what has, uh, Micah has in his prophetic crosshairs. The lack of righteousness in all areas of life and then lack of personal righteousness. We see the inactivity of a righteous leadership and the activity of wicked men as it's outlined here. In the first five verses, we have the crime of wickedness being committed. In verses 1 and 2, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And then in verse 3 and 4, we see the resulting disaster and the retribution that comes in verse 5. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. They will be... What that, what, he, what that means is that they will be excluded from God's portioning of the land. Remember in Old Testament Israel, this was a, a, a picture of God's blessing the land. We have that same blessing as well. We call it heaven, right? Hebrews says that, that Abraham wasn't just looking for a promise. He, he wasn't just looking for a land to settle in. He was looking for the promised land, the, the land of fellowship with God. Now, the leadership of Israel at the time were oppressing Uh, allowing the oppression of their peoples, robbing the covenant people of their birthright, the land given by the Lord. Now, again, this may not be something that that we can relate to very well. No one's threatening your land. But in their agrarian economy, this would have been utter disaster. Bruce Waltke puts it this way. He says, in that agrarian economy, a person's life depended on his fields. And for that reason, his inheritance was carefully safeguarded by the law of God. It was a sacred trust, not just another piece of real estate. If a person lost his fields, at best he might become a day laborer. At worst, he might become a slave. In either case, he lost his independence, his freedom before God, and became a dependent of the land barons, the debtors, the loan sharks of the day. Again, you might be thinking, yeah, that sounds bad. It's bad and all, but what about me? I'm not stealing people's land. The heart of the sinfulness in this passage is interesting. It's in verse 2. It says, they covet. They covet. 
This is the word that unites us across the millennium. We may not have the land challenges that they did, or maybe we do, but we still have the same heart-sin problem. Covetousness. This is the ugly underside of us. This is a picture of our sinful heart. Micah not only exposes the obvious, but he points us to our common sinful core. You might not have done the wicked things that these wicked people have done, but your heart problem is the same. Don't kid yourself. If you were put in the situation that they were in, you might have done similarly. You need to confront that which makes us discontent. Where do we find our satisfaction? Coveting is is, is really the sin of not finding satisfaction in what the Lord has provided for you. It's saying, God, you haven't been good to me enough. I want that woman, or I want that man, or I want that piece of land, or I want that promotion, or I want that lifestyle, or I want that friendship. I want that baby. All of those things. We are called to be satisfied in what God has provided. He is sufficient for all our needs. Coveting is a sin that we tolerate, but it eats away at us. It eats away at our core. And it's not just in the world. As Micah goes on in verses 6 to 11, he says it exists in the church too. This is where the failure is so evident. He captures the pressures against him and against Isaiah as pure prophets in verse 6. He says, do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. What is he talking about there? Well, as Micah and Isaiah were faithful preachers in Israel and Jerusalem, Isaiah at the court and Micah at the court around, they were telling people, were saying, don't preach at us. Don't preach at us. We're not going to do this. We're not going to, disgrace is not going to overtake us. Stop it. Be quiet. People don't like the word of God being preached. Our area is upon us. As Paul said to Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's not popular to talk about sin. It's not nice to have sinful conversations conversations about sin. A pastor friend of mine once said that pastorate is a series of awkward conversations. It is. Because a lot of times we're talking about sin. But it's important. It's actually loving. This is a very interesting thing, isn't it? Because the message that we're bringing to you today is very different than what you will hear in many of the pulpits in Barbados, America, Canada, and around the world. Because those pulpits are full of false prophets that are preaching self-help and goods and wealth and prosperity. If you only do this, if you give me a little bit of money... Everything will be good. Everything, if you tie, everything will be good. That's not the message here. Israel didn't stop tithing, by the way. The Levites were still there. There were some problems. That isn't what God is concerned about. He's not concerned about their outward actions. He's concerned about their inward covetous hearts. And the only way that can address that is to have faithful leadership. If you don't have faithful leadership... You don't have a church. This is the way to destroy a church, to have vacuous leadership. In Canada, we have 
a church that sounds very Canadian. It's called the United Church of Canada. And historically, it was a group of churches that came together, Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Methodists, some Baptists. They came together and said, oh, let's put aside our differences, we'll come together. But then, in the 1950s, they set aside the, uh, the, the gospel in their children's curriculum. In the 1980s, they began to deny the resurrection. They denied, began to deny the divine divinity of Christ in other ways. And most recently, they were in the paper a number of weeks ago, or actually over the last few years, they've been in the paper a lot, uh, because of their, their, one of their famous ministers, who, by the way, is an atheist. She lives in my neighborhood. And uh, she tried to change uh, the foundation of the, the church, which said, to the glory of God, 1950, whatever it was, and she wanted to chisel in an extra O, to the glory of good, because God is no longer the foundation of the church. So they were interviewed in the local paper. The moderator of the United Church was interviewed in the local paper. And, and the reporter, I, I, God bless them, asked the question. He said, you know, in Roman Catholicism, priests have to pass exams. Rabbis have to hold a certain standards. What are the standards of the United Church? And the moderator honestly answered, we don't like standards. That's evident. Right? But what's, what's the fruit? Well, people are fleeing the church and the church is dying. Because it is abandoned. The word of God. Preachers are not preaching what's actually here. They're not preaching Micah in the sense... That they might preach Micah, but they might look and they say, do justice. What does that mean? Well, doing justice is you know taking care of the poor, um, putting people in, in homeless shelters and all those things. And there's, I'm not saying that there aren't ministry mercies that are there, but that's not the full gospel. What Micah's indicting them for is their inner corruption, which is expressed in their outer faithlessness and sinfulness. United Church of Canada was asked what it actually stands for. And this is the summary of the largest Protestant denomination in Canada. We stand for climate justice. Not Jesus. Climate justice. What does that mean? I don't know. Today, we have incredible pressure on us in the church to tone down our message. To vacate it of judgment, wrath, and sin in the scriptures. Oh no, he's a fire and brimstone preacher. That's like that's from the old days, Right? But the thing that you need to understand is we read the book of Micah, if we remove this, that in itself is a judgment. When we feel, fail to speak of God as he truly is in the purity of his holiness, then we do not tell the truth. We condemn people to hell because we do not warn them of its reality. How can people escape the flames of hell if we don't tell them they're, they're in danger of it? This is not me saying this. This is not Pastor Chris has got a bee in his bonnet. He's a hell and fire and brimstone preacher. No, it is in the word of God. And my job and my only job is to proclaim what's in the scriptures. This is the role of the preacher. And to withdraw the role of the preacher is a judgment. Paul says this in Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him, God, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So judgment is absolutely necessary. We need to know the bad news. What's the end game here? How do we proceed? We are convicted 
Like the Israelites, we've gone our own way. We've embraced all forms of idolatry. We've put even good things, put into ultimate things. Taking the place of God is the only ultimate, is idolatry. So you may not have little, little, little Vishnus and, and little, little Buddhas in your house, but it may be there at your computer. Or it may be your children, where you prioritize family over worship. Family over serving and bowing to your Lord. Idols are subtle. Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. We we break one and then we've manufactured another. It's very easy for us to pursue these ways. So what's the end game? How do we proceed? Micah here presents us a fearful message of divine wrath in these first two chapters. We see the gospel is suffused throughout the Old Testament. It's not just the God of wrath of the Old Testament, as some have said, and the God of grace in the New Testament. No! We see the God of grace and the God of wrath are the same God. And we see this, this picture of an escape. There's a simple way to escape God's judgment. It comes at the beginning of our passage in chapter 1, in verse 2. It says, Hear! Hear, you peoples, hear the word of the Lord. It's a failure to hear the word of God that spelled the end for Samaria and then threatened Jerusalem. The beginning I asked, how do we deal with our sin and corruption? The answer is that we can't in our own strength. We can't in our own strength break free of sin. We need a bondage-breaking Savior. We need the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we see finally and secondly and briefly here in the final two verses of chapter 2. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord at their head. The picture here at the end of chapter 2 is where we see a gathering of the remnant of God's people. Notice the language here. It's restrictive. He calls out the descendants of Jacob, the 12 tribes, but he calls and he speaks of a remnant of God's faithful people. The gathering picture here is of a shepherd with a sheep. And we have this sort of idea, and we, when we think about shepherds and sheep, we think of, you know, walking lazily along with the sheep, and, you know, like green pastures and sunny shields, sunny, sunny, sunny skies. I don't know if any of you are shepherds, or, you know, if you have goats that you shepherd, I have no idea. But they can be very ordinary things. They're dumb and stupid. And to be a shepherd requires a certain forcefulness. Right? The, the, the hook coming around and pulling the sheep back. Right? And, the, and the, the staff to whack them over the head when they're going in the wrong way. Right? And that's the picture here of the shepherd. He will get them one way or another, by hook or by crook. And this is the picture. Despite our covetousness and sinfulness, God will break us of our bondage. That's the picture. God will do what is necessary. He will warn but if we fail to listen, he will come and we will see his divine wrath. And in that, sometimes when we have those horrible things happen in our lives, everything comes into clear focus. When things are nice and rosy, 
It's hard to see these things. Right? That's what Moses warned Israel. It's when they go into, into the promised land, that, you know, the, the land of milk and honey and fruit, and you will forget your God. And that's exactly what they did. But when God comes in the exile, they turn to God in repentance. They cried out to God. And God led them back. He brought back a remnant from exile. That's the whole picture of the scriptures. Right? All of us deserve to go to hell. But God in his mercy does not destroy us all. The flood could easily have wiped out humanity entirely. And it's a picture of divine justice. It's not the, the cute little art toys. And you know, no one is right. They look so happy. And they would be weeping and wailing for the destruction and for the wrath that was displayed. And God will do what's necessary to bring this across. Davis tells a fascinating story about a minister in the Scottish Highlands in the 1700s. He had a great name, Aeneas Sage. How's that? Aeneas Sage. Aeneas Sage was a man of enormous strength. And he found that the kind of invitation where he said, oh, come to church, didn't work very well with the people of his parish. They were happy to go out and play games on Sunday, but not for God and for Sabbath worship. So Sage had challenged and then thrown the champion wrestler for the area. He was a big man. And he took on his challenger, Big Rory. And Rory took his defeat in good heart. And Aeneas made a little deal with him. He entered into an agreement with Aeneas the minister. Aeneas said to him, Come the next day, the next Lord's Day, when people are engaged in their games, we're going to go get us a congregation. So Sage and Big Rory showed up on the Lord's Day. And then when they were there, they grabbed a couple of men. And they walked out and they grabbed the locals and dragged them into church. And they locked them in. And then they went out and they got some more and they dragged them in and they locked the doors and locked them in. And then Big Rory stood at the back of the church brandishing a club in case someone decided that they weren't interested in worshiping. Mr. Sage then ascended to the pulpit. He led worship and he preached. And the fascinating thing about it, it was the inevitability. Sage wanted a congregation. He was going to get one. And there wasn't anything anybody could do about it. That's kind of the feel here. Now, that is not the missiology that I'm advocating for you in Barbados. Just to be clear. (laughs) Just to be clear. That is not what I'm suggesting you did. But he took the urgency. And God uses incredible different ways. Again, I'm not recommending this. But that's the feel of Micah's prophecy here. If Messiah is a breaker or a smasher, and if his heart is bent on liberating his people, what or who can stand in his way? That should put some grit and steel into our bones. We have a sin problem, don't we? Like Augustine, when we confront God's righteous requirements for our life, when we encounter his law... We need to pray like the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or as Augustine put it, grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. 
May God grant us, in His mercy, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we may do all that He commands. If you know Jesus this morning, delight in Him. Delight in this bondage-breaking Savior. Jesus is the one who is taking you out of the pit of your sin and your selfishness and your covetousness and the evil cesspool that is your heart. And he's given you a new heart, a new desire to follow after Him, to endeavor after a new obedience. He turns us from the bondage of sin to the bondage of following and worshiping Him, from serving and worshiping the gods of sex and envy, and power to serving the God of mercy and love. If you're not a Christian this morning, or if you doubt whether you are, if you're still bound up in the sins of this world, like the Jews that Micah was preaching to, look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Trust that He came down to deal with your sin, to live a perfect life of obedience. So that he could die a perfect death on the cross for your sin. So that he could bear the load of your sin by his sinless death. He serves as a substitution for you. He endured the wrath of God and he propitiated it. He turned it away because he himself was able to bear it. You and I cannot bear the weight of our sin. You and I cannot endure it. And if we do not turn from it, we will suffer an eternity in hell. But we have a bondage-breaking Savior who can deliver us, who can change us from the inside out. Don't ignore this message. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Amen.